0: turn to God's Word and we're continuing a series in the book of Exodus. We had our congregational meeting last week, so it's been a couple of weeks since we were uh, together. Pastor Kiefer last uh, took us through the book of the covenant, the uh, laws that God gave to Moses and to Israel in chapters 21 to 23. And as we look ahead here, we have three Sunday nights left in February, counting tonight. And when we get to March with Dr. Rogers' retirement, uh, our Sunday evenings are going to uh, involve a lot of... uh, Other pastors from around our presbytery and missionary guests, as the associate pastors do the bulk of the preaching on Sunday mornings. And so, uh, as we've got guests coming on Sunday evenings, we wanted to finish up Exodus here in February. And so, you'll get three key episodes in Exodus here in our final three weeks. Uh, Tonight, we'll do the Golden Calf. Uh, Next week, Dr. Light will take the tabernacle, and then Dr. York in the final week with the glory of God's presence that descends at the end of Exodus. So open with me to chapter 32 of Exodus, Exodus 32, and I want to read a little bit longer uh, passage tonight. Uh, I'm going to skip a couple of of sections here, but we'll read a a good portion of chapters 32 and 33 uh, of Exodus tonight. So follow along with me in your Bibles uh, as we start with Exodus 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses... And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down. And I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, "O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger. We're going to skip down to verse 30 in the intervening 15 verses. Moses comes down from the mountain, sees the people worshiping the golden calf, and in his anger he grinds the calf to powder, puts it in the water, and has the people drink it. And after that Moses calls and says, whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And all of the Levites join him, and they kill 3,000 of those who instigated this rebellion against God. We're going to pick up in verse 30 after these 3,000 have been killed. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on that people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land with milk and honey, but I will not go among you, lest I consume you on the way you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now, take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. We skip down to verse 12. The intervening verses tell about the tent that Moses would meet with the presence of God. And in verse 12, Moses meets with God again at the tent of meeting. Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you will see my back, but my face shall not be seen. This is God's word. This is a longer passage of scripture, and there is so much we could say. But as you read this passage of scripture... I think there are two key things that shape this story. There's two things that, as the rest of Scripture looks back on this episode, it comments on again and again. And so, there's two key things that I want us to see from God's Word tonight as we look at this story. First, this passage is a case study in idolatry. What is idolatry? How does idolatry work? What are the consequences of idolatry? This story is a real-life scenario, a real-life picture of how idolatry works. And I want us to look at how idolatry comes into our hearts and our lives. Now, if we're going to understand what's going on in this story and how idolatry starts, I think you have to start by putting yourself in the place of a typical Israelite sitting in his tent at the foot of Mount Horeb. If you remember, back in Exodus chapter 19, God had descended on the mountain in thunder and in lightnings and in trumpet blasts, and Israel, trembling before the power of the Lord, had responded by saying, Moses, you go talk to the Lord. If we stand before the Lord, we're going to die. So you go talk to the Lord and bring us his word, and we'll hear it from you. And right after that, Moses ascended the mountain into that dark cloud. It said Moses went up into that dark cloud of the presence of God. And he hasn't been seen from since. So you're the typical Israelite. You've said, you go, Moses. We're going to die if we go up there. Moses goes up and he's gone for 40 days. Think about it. 40 days ago was January 1st. You were celebrating the new year. The government shutdown had just begun. No one had ever heard of the polar vortex before. And this is 40 days ago. And maybe for some of us, that seems like, oh, well, 40, you know, January 1st, that, you know, that just happened, it seemed like yesterday. But our lives have been busy and full of things every day. Your Israelite here has been doing nothing except sitting in his tent and waiting for Moses. And he went up into the presence of God, and he's not coming down. And so, as day by day passes, you start to think, "What happened to Moses? Is he gone? Did he die in the presence of God? Has he abandoned us? Where is this Moses?" And now, we, an entire nation of people, are stuck in the middle of the desert. What are we going to do? We can't save ourselves. And you can hear, as day after day passes, the and the Israelites are talking to themselves, "Boy, if Moses is gone, what do we do? We're stuck here. We don't know where we're going." No leader. Moses was their contact with God. God's presence is gone. We can't survive out here. And so, uh, day after day, week after week, this goes on until finally you can imagine the sort of leaders amongst them. They get up and they go to Aaron and they say, Enough. We need a new leader who will get us out of here. And we need someone with power. And so, make us gods. Make us gods who will go before us and lead us out of this desert and so Aaron crafts a golden cow and calls for an altar and a festival and the people sit down to eat and drink and rise up to play now when we read through Exodus it's so easy for us to say Israelites how many times have you seen God save you from seemingly impossible situations God has not abandoned you what are you thinking thinking that God has abandoned you here it's easy for us to shake our heads in disbelief. I mean, you just got the Ten Commandments, Israel. You just heard, don't make any graven images, and you just said you'd do it. You just saw what God has done. But I think it's important for us as we read this story to remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says, these things took place as examples for us, and he quotes this story. He quotes this story and says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. These things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So you see what Paul's saying? Paul's saying this story is for God's people lest they become too confident and think that we would not sin like this. So if this was written for our example and our instruction, let's break this down. What happens with idolatry here? How does, what does this passage tell us about how idolatry works? I think the passage starts by showing us that idolatry begins when God doesn't seem to be coming through the way we think he should come through for us. Now Israel had every reason to trust God. God had brought them out of Egypt. He'd brought them through an ocean. He'd brought them through hunger and thirst and enemy armies. But now in chapter 32, at this moment, Israel doesn't know what's happening. They don't see God's presence. It feels like they've been abandoned. It feels like they're stuck in a wilderness. It feels like God is not with them and coming through the way they need God to come through for them right now. God doesn't seem to be speaking to them. The entire nation seems stuck in the desert with no leader. And so for Israel here, we sense this mix of impatience, of distrust that maybe God doesn't really care for them or isn't really there. Some expectations maybe that God isn't meeting. But Israel is left feeling insecure, not knowing what God's up to or what's coming, facing difficulty, and their conclusion is if we're insecure, if we don't know what's happening, if we don't have a way to face this difficulty, God is not coming through for us right now. And that's the attitude that opens the door for idolatry. God should be treating us differently. God should be providing for us in a different way, and he's not. The door's cracked open for idolatry. Well, then the passage shows us that idolatry enters when we think we have an idea of something that will help us within our situation. Insecurity, suffering, difficulty. We think we have an idea of something that will help us there. The Israelites come to Aaron and they say, up, make us gods who will go before us. This is their solution. If we're feeling insecure, if we feel like God's not coming through, I know we'll make some gods and that will help us. Now remember, Israel has spent 430 years in Egypt. Israel would be very familiar with the gods of Egypt and how they worked. What are the gods of Egypt? Well, they're very tangible things. You can see them. You can touch them. You can bow down before them. They're right there. And the gods of Egypt seemed to work out pretty well for the Egyptians. Egypt was a flourishing nation. Egypt, Egypt had, um, had a lot of things that were going well for them. Their gods seemed very present for them, seemed to take care of them. So they say, that's what we'll do. We'll make gods for us like Egypt had. And that will be our help. If you remember in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is about to be stoned, Stephen speaks to the Jews. And this is exactly what he says. As he's summarizing this episode, he says, our fathers refused to obey God, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt saying, Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. They were turning back to Egypt and say, let's do it this way. Aaron Make us gods who will lead us like Egypt had. Israel looks for something to help them in their situation. They grab on to something that the rest of the world uses to help them in insecurity and difficulty and says, we'll give that a try. And that's what idolatry does. Idolatry comes when we use the things of the world to help us in our insecurities and difficulties instead of God. I think then this passage shows us that idolatry is is completely illogical. It seems like a great idea to these Israelites. It worked for Egypt, maybe it'll work for us. But this passage says no, that doesn't make any sense. The people turned to gods like what they saw in Egypt. But what did they just see when they were Egypt? They saw that Yahweh, their God, showed in one plague after another that he completely decimated the gods of Egypt the gods of Egypt were nothing compared to the power of Yahweh. And so the the ridiculousness of this idolatry is to turn in Yahweh in favor of the gods of Egypt. And this is exactly what Psalm 106 says. Psalm 106 comments on this, and it says, they, our fathers, made a calf in Horeb and worshiped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. So well said. The Psalms put it so well, right? They exchanged the glory of God for a metal image of an ox that eats grass. Really, what chance does a statue of a baby cow have to lead thousands upon thousands of Israelites out of a desert compared to the glorious God who works wonders? It doesn't make any sense. And of course, the irony of the whole thing is that where is moses right now the reason they do this is because moses has disappeared moses is up on the mountain right now getting instructions for how to make the tabernacle which is how god's presence is going to dwell tangibly among his people and god is making the plans for how he's going to lead his people out of the desert and into the promised land that's the deceitfulness of idolatry idolatry lies to us by offering immediate relief or action, even though the immediate relief or action is completely futile and completely ridiculous compared to the power of God if we would but trust his solid promises. So idolatry arises when God doesn't seem to be coming through the way we want him to. Idolatry enters when we think we have an idea from the world around us of something that can help us. It's completely illogical. But notice that this passage also offers us a warning about idolatry. And what I think this passage shows us is that idolatry is not just a random choice or an action that we need to avoid. Idolatry has infiltrated our hearts. It's our default mode anytime God doesn't seem to meet our expectations. And here's what I mean by that. If, if you followed with us through this series in Exodus, what you'll remember is that this is at least the fourth time that Israel has asked to go back to Egypt in just the few short chapters since they left the land. When they were stuck in the Red Sea, before the Red Sea, they said, what'd you do, bring us out here because there weren't graves in Egypt? We should have stayed in Egypt. It was better there. They came and there was no water. And they said, oh, if you had only listened to us and left us in Egypt. I don't think that's how that went, actually. When there was no food, they said, Oh, if you would have left us in Egypt, remember the leeks and the onions and the food we ate in Egypt. And here they are now saying, Oh, if we only had the gods of Egypt. You see, every single time on their journey that something doesn't go the way they want it to go, idolatry comes out. They turn to Egypt rather than to God. It's infiltrated into their hearts. It's the it's the default mode of who Israel was, and it's the default mode of who we are it's infiltrated our hearts apart from the grace of god as well and here's the lesson for us the lesson is that we do not just need to keep an eye out in case we're tempted to idolatry at some point it's not as if we can go along our way through life and say well at some point we might be tempted to idolatry so we have to keep an eye out for that the lesson is the opposite idolatry is in our hearts And so we need to make a daily, repeated, and active decision to trust God in every situation rather than idolatry. So we don't walk around thinking, okay, maybe idolatry will tempt me at some point. Idolatry is going to tempt us because it's in our hearts. And so the call of Scripture is to say day after day, we must make the active decision to trust God because only when we're making that daily and active decision to trust Him Will our hearts be guarded against idolatry? Well, finally, this passage I think shows us that to exchange the glory of God for a useless item of the world is wicked and has disastrous consequences. God tells Moses to leave him alone so that his wrath might burn against this stick necked people and he might consume them. Moses calls all that are on the Lord's side to join him, and 3,000 Israelites are killed by the sword, and more at the end of chapter 32, die by a plague. God says that his glorious presence cannot dwell with a people who are sinful and idolatrous, lest he consume them. Finding security or purpose or hope our way when God seems distance, distant from us is not an understandable little mistake. It is a decision to exchange who we're trusting in. And that's an act of rebellion. And that rebellion deserves death. This passage reminds us that idolatry is an affront to our king and our God. We cannot commit it lightly. It is treason against him. You know, the idolatries of our life work just the same as the golden calf worked for Israel. Whether it's money in the bank to give us security, whether it's money spent on pleasures or vacations to give us joy, Whether it's success to give us a sense of meaning and accomplishment. Whether it's Netflix to provide a relaxing way to spend my time without stress. Whether it's a relationship, companionships that I will not be lonely. Whatever it is, put the various idols in that we latch on to and they work the same way. There's uncertainty or suffering. God doesn't seem to be coming through the way we'd hoped. And so we grasp at the things that the world uses to make life work. And we exchange the glory of God for things that moth and rust destroy. And this passage calls us to see how idolatry works, to understand its consequences, and to turn again in trust to our God. Paul says these things were written for our instruction. So let us, brothers and sisters, take heed lest we fall. That's the first thing this passage highlights. But while Scripture comments on idolatry here, the second thing about this story that has to jump out of us, the second big theme of this story, probably the primary thing in this story, is this multi-round, back-and-forth wrestling between Moses and God. And I hope you followed, as we went through this story, this ongoing discussion between Moses and God. Moses stands up as a mediator to plead for Israel to make intercession for them and secure their forgiveness and reconciliation. And this is astounding. You know, at the beginning of our story, we're introduced to a people who's delighting in ugly, profane worship of a metal cow. That's what Israel's doing. At the end of this passage, at the end of chapter 33, we're given a glimpse of the blazing, pure, holy glory of God such that Moses can't even look on it fully or he will die. Those are the two things that we see framing this story. How could those things come together? How could ugly and profane idol worshipers come into the presence of a glorious and holy God? It seems impossible, doesn't it? And it is impossible. We think that there's no other option other than what God says in verse nine of chapter thirty two let me alone so that my wrath may be burn hot against them, and I may consume them. This is impossible that sinners could come into the presence of this glory and this holiness. It's impossible unless there's a mediator we know what a mediator is, right? A mediator is someone who brings two parties who are in conflict together. Maybe you've been in a negotiation, a business negotiation, and a mediator, it's a, it's a job that you can be trained in to be a mediator, to mediate business deals, where two people on opposite ends would be brought together to an agreement. Or maybe you've been trained in conflict resolution. We've had Peacemaker Ministries come to Westminster before and train people to be mediators who can help two people who are in conflict reconcile in their relationships uh, together. Maybe you've had someone introduce you to someone who you would never be able to meet before. I was talking to my grandparents about uh, my cousins from Indiana, and they knew some friends who were family friends of Mike Pence. And they were talking about how They went to visit the White House, and most of us can't even get past the black gate that's like, what, half a mile from the White House. Well, they were led into the White House and given a tour of every room in the White House. How does that happen? Only a mediator, only someone who knows the people in the White House and you and can bring the two together. The only way for Israel to be in God's presence is for a mediator to stand up. In this passage, these two chapters unfold in slow motion, one conversation after another, demonstrating with crystal clarity that when it comes to people who are born with sinful hearts, there is no chance that they could live in God's presence. There's no hope of reconciliation with a holy God unless a mediator whom God loves stands up on behalf of the people and earns God's ear. And that's just what Moses does throughout these two chapters. And I want you to just see how Moses works in these two chapters, what he appeals to. And sometimes, I think as we read this story, we're almost a little uncomfortable. And we think, how is it that a man, Moses, can really appeal to God in these ways? And when Jesus is a mediator, we're okay with that because he's God himself. But Moses is just a human being. But I want you to notice that as Moses talks with God, What Moses does is he appeals to God for God's sake, for the sake of God's name and for the sake of God's glory. And and in doing so, appeals on behalf of Israel. Watch how it plays out. The conversation begins in chapter 32, verse 11. Moses begins by appealing to God's honor and God's glory. He says, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt. Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains? You see what Moses is saying. He says, God, you've brought this people out. Part of the reason you worked these plagues and this salvation was so that all the nations would see your power and glory. God, what does that do if you bring this people out and then slaughter them in the mountains? What will people say about the name and the glory and the honor of God? What is Moses doing? He's appealing to God's honor and God's glory on behalf of Israel. He urges God not to wipe out Israel because of God's faithfulness to his own name for the sake of his own glory. But Moses doesn't stop there. Notice then verse 13 in chapter 32. Moses goes on to appeal to God's promises to his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, God, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by yourself to bring them into this land, to multiply them as the stars of heaven. Moses is reminding God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whom he loves, and of his promises to to them. And he urges God not to wipe out Israel because of God's faithfulness to his word, because God swore by his own name, because of his steadfast love to his people. What Moses does is he rises up to speak on behalf of Israel, but in doing so, he's speaking on behalf of God as well, appealing to God for God's glory, for the sake of God's name, reminding God of his own promises, and calling God to be faithful to what he has said. And in the face of these statements, God relents from destroying Israel for the sake of his name and his promises. But at this point, even though God has relented from disaster, God is still far off from Israel. He's not drawing close to them. He says, Okay, I will not destroy them. But he is still standing far apart. And so you see, Moses, we picked it up in verse 30 of chapter 32, and you see what Moses says. He says, You've sinned a great sin. Now I will go up to the Lord and perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. In other words, perhaps we can gain forgiveness for you, for your sin. But what could Moses possibly do to gain forgiveness for Israel's sin? What could Moses do, a man, to make atonement for Israel's sin? Well, do you see what he offers? you see what Moses offers and what he says? It's chapter 32, verse 32. Verse 32. Moses goes up and says to God, Oh God, if you will forgive their sin, he pleads for forgiveness of sin, but then what does he say? If not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Moses offers up his own life in pleading with God that God would forgive their sin. Moses puts his own life on the line on behalf of Israel. Moses says, please, Lord, forgive this people, and if not, take my life in their stead. God responds by saying, I will not kill you. Those who have sinned against me I'll blot out of my book, but go now. Lead this people to the place I have spoken to you. Forgiveness is granted as God says, yes, I will send you to lead them to the promised land. But even though forgiveness is granted, we're still not all the way to reconciliation because God then says, you go lead them and I'll send an angel, but I'm not going with them. God says, my presence is still not going with them because if I go with them, I will consume them. And here's where Moses, where Moses responds so well. He and Israel recognize that this is a disastrous word. And I think this is an important moment Because here, Israel's being offered the promised land, but without God's presence. And so the question is, will they be happy with the blessing of a good land without God's presence? Or do they recognize that God's presence is actually the most important thing? I think it's a little test. Maybe it's a test for us, too. Do we just care about God's blessings? Or do we actually care about the presence of God and relationship with God himself? Well, Moses and the people respond correctly. They recognize that God leading them up into the promised land, destroying the Canaanites, but not dwelling with them is a disastrous word because it's the presence of God that actually matters. And so Moses draws near to God at the tent of meeting. And notice what what Moses says in chapter 33, starting in verse 12. He says, God, you have said we should go up to the promised land but you haven't told me who's going up with us. Show me your ways. And God responds, my presence will go with you. Now, this is huge. God promises not a random angel, but his own presence. But Moses isn't content yet. And for good reason, even though we can't tell it in the text, because the you there is singular. It's a singular you. God says, my presence will go with you, Moses. But Moses says, that's not enough. I don't want your presence with me. Moses goes on to identify the people. And you see what he says there in verse 16? He says, how will I know that I have found favor in your sight? I and your people. Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? I and your people? See, Moses is saying, I don't want you just going up with me, God. That doesn't reclaim who you are. That doesn't make Israel your chosen people. That doesn't fulfill your promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's only when your presence is with us that we are your people. It is only when your presence is with the whole people of Israel that you are being faithful to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, that we have the hope of being your people. See, without God's favor, without God's presence, Israel ceases to be who God set them apart to be. Israel ceases to have the blessings God promised with them. And so Moses says, God, in order to be your chosen people, we, as your people, need your presence. And to the joy of both Moses and Israel, in verse 17, the Lord says, this very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight. And I know your name. A mediator was found. A mediator stood up on behalf of Israel and drew near to God and brought reconciliation. And again in Psalm 106, the Psalms put this so beautifully. Here's what the psalmist says. He says, Therefore God said that he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Moses is the mediator who stood before God. But of course, Moses himself was a man and a sinner. And even though Moses stood up before God, if we flip ahead to Numbers, we find out that Moses doesn't even get to go into the promised land himself because he was a sinner who sinned before God. And this whole generation of Israelites don't get to go into the promised land because they sinned and rejected God and his promises. And so Israel's hearts are left waiting for another mediator. Moses was not enough. He was not the full promise. We're left waiting for a mediator who could do more than make temporary peace that's bound to fail because one side is kept by idolaters. so in the end this story slowly and surely line upon line should be stirring our hearts filling our hearts with a greater longing for and appreciation for jesus christ who will stand up and be everything that moses was and yet so much more because he will make a perfect mediator between us and god right before he was arrested in john chapter 17 jesus prayed an intercessory prayer A mediator prayer before God, to God his Father on behalf of his people. And I want to just remind you of some of the things that Jesus prayed. He prays for all of the things Moses asked for. John chapter 17, he reminds God of his own glory, saying, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. He reminds God of his promises saying, you have given me authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given me. Jesus says, remember that eternal covenant we made? You from all eternity have given me people. Now is the time. Father, I am going to die for those people you have given me. Jesus offers his own life and his own death to secure his people's forgiveness. He says in that prayer, for their sake, I will consecrate myself so that they might be sanctified in the truth. And Jesus called on God's presence to be the mark of his people, saying that the whole way that God's people will be known is by God's presence with them. He prays that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. How will God's people be known? when God's presence is dwelling in God's people. But this time, of course, Jesus is not a fellow sinner. He's the perfect son of God. God accepted the sacrifice of his life for the atonement and reconciliation of his people. As Hebrews puts it, therefore, holy brothers, consider this Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house, But Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant to testify what was spoken later. Christ is faithful as a son. And so brothers and sisters, you and I sit here. We know that our hearts are born idolaters. We grasp at things in this world. Exodus 32 gives us the anatomy of idolatry. And I pray that we would take heed lest we fall and learn from this example. But Scripture says that we too have God's chosen one standing in the breach on our behalf to turn away God's wrath from us, a perfect Savior, Jesus Christ, one that makes what should be impossible possible. My and your ability to stand in the presence of a holy God. Have you come to Jesus? Is he your Savior? If not, will you come to the one mediator who will bring us to God tonight? And if you have put your faith in Christ, will you rejoice with me with joy inexpressible for the hope of glory of God's presence that he secured for us tonight? Let's pray. Oh God, you have secured for us the impossible, dwelling in your presence, sinful people, with God, the holy God. I thank you for Jesus Christ. I pray that this story would remind us how much we need him and how much he has done for us. May we glory in him and in him alone. And We pray this through Christ. Amen.